Hello, and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis. On the show, we unpack the truth and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you've come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Joint Action Podcast. This week, we have the opportunity to talk about stem cells, platelet-rich plasma, and other biologic treatments for osteoarthritis. Now, these often fall under the category of what we call orthobiologics, and they include treatments like platelet-rich plasma and stem cells. And they've gained a lot of popularity for osteoarthritis treatment over recent years. They often include cell treatments, blood components, or growth factors, which claim to promote healing and reduce inflammation. Platelet-rich plasma and stem cell injections can have expensive out-of-pocket costs associated with them. And in general, there's not a lot of great evidence to support the use of these in people with osteoarthritis. On this episode of Joint Action, we're joined by Dr. Brian Cole to unpack this controversial topic of osteoarthritis orthobiologics. As mentioned, there's tremendous community interest in these types of interventions. And it's really important for you as consumers out there who have osteoarthritis to be aware of the costs, but probably more importantly, to be aware of their potential for efficacy and potentially associated harms. We have an ulterior motive to do this topic at the moment because we're in the process of recruiting for a stem cell trial here in Sydney and also in Hobart in Australia. This is a large trial where we're looking at symptoms and structural effects of these treatments in people that have osteoarthritis of the knee. If you're particularly interested in being involved in that trial, we'll include a link to the trial recruitment site in the show notes. Firstly, though, just to introduce our guest for today is Dr. Brian Cole, who's an orthopedic sports surgeon at Midwest Orthopedics at Rush and a professor of orthopedics, anatomy, and cell biology at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. He's the managing partner of Midwest Orthopedics and the department's associate chairman and section head of cartilage research and restoration. He is the 2020 president of the Arthroscopy Association of North America, and his research interests include cartilage restoration, therapeutic biologics, and regenerative medicine, and minimally invasive techniques for the treatment of knee, elbow, and shoulder. He's published more than 1,000 articles and eight textbooks in orthopedic surgery and sports medicine, and has lectured widely, both nationally and internationally. His professional career outside of academia includes working as a team physician for the Chicago Bulls, the co-team physician for the Chicago White Sox, and a team physician for the Chicago Fire, Chicago Dogs, and DePaul University. And he served as a co-host for 10 years on the radio talk show Sports Medicine Weekly, which was originally on ESPN and currently on the 670 The Score Chicago Sports Radio. 
Hello, Brian. Welcome to the show. Great to see you. Likewise, and uh, thank you for having me. Uh, 18 hours in difference in time zone. <laughs> it's a long, long way away, and it might be a, a little while before we uh, get to the United States. I wish I could be there now, but uh, travel restrictions and COVID are limiting a lot of those international trips. Yeah, no, sometime soon, we hope. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Now, before we get into the main content of the show, which is around orthobiologics, I just wanted to give the listeners a bit of a chance to get to know you a little bit better. But can you share with the listeners a little bit more about your background and what a typical day might look like? Sure. So I'm an orthopedic surgeon uh, in Chicago at uh, Rush University Medical Center, which is an academic medical center. Uh, we're part of a, a, a pretty large multi-specialty group. I'm actually the managing partner of this group. And um, I've been in practice 23 years, and uh, I'm a sports medicine physician who specializes in shoulder, elbow, and knee surgery. And I would say about you know 30% of my time is uh, seeing patients, and another 30% of the time is uh, doing surgery, and maybe another 20% of the time is administrative. And uh, also take care of a couple of professional sports teams in Chicago. I take care of the Chicago Bulls and help take care of our baseball and our soccer, the White Sox and uh, Chicago Fire. And then have a number of administrative responsibilities for our specialty organization. So I'm very involved with teaching. Uh, we also do a tremendous amount of research and uh, clinical trials. Our, our equivalent to your regulatory body is the FDA. So we're very involved with uh, FDA uh, regulated trials. And we also have a fellowship where we train uh, fellows who, are, who have finished their residency and are going for one year of specialty training. And then have a special interest in orthobiologics, uh, the area of, it's not necessarily all regenerative medicine per se, but it's uh, using uh, various adjuncts to treatment, whether it be office-based treatment and the treatment of arthritis or in the operating room as an adjunct to some of the surgeries that we do. Fantastic. Sounds like you've got an incredibly full plate. Do you ever get a chance to go out and spend time watching any of those professional teams you look after? I see a lot. I watch a lot of basketball and a fair amount of baseball. And uh, I've been taking care of the Bulls for 17 years and our schedule is full. It's 82 games a year and half of those games are home. And then if we make the playoffs, which we didn't this year, this year was a little bit of a, a screwy season, as you can imagine. But, you know, it's, it's a fair amount of time. But fortunately, basketball, I enjoy it. So that's not much of a, a chore. That's, a, that's actually generally a lot of fun. Yeah, it's, great. it's a great game. And uh, I'm getting a lot of chance to watch quite a bit of it at the moment. On a similar note, when you're not doing your day job, what is it that you like to do? So uh, I'm a very avid downhill skier. I've been skiing since I've been in, uh, you know, very, very young, you know, eight, nine years old. And uh, I ski probably 30, 35 days a year and recently got into uh, some adult racing, uh, uh, interested in the opportunity to do some amateur like giant slalom and things of that nature. Uh, that was That's all new, but it's something that I hope to uh, uh, indulge in further. I for a number of years, I would climbing mountains. I climb, you know, these are not huge mountains, but in, in they're a little bit technical. So a number of years in a row, we would train to climb uh, various mountains. So in the United States, we have Rainier and the Tetons and some other mountains that are in the 16 to 18,000 foot range. So that's been something that's helped to keep me in shape. I spent a lot of time with my children. I still have a one at home who's 15 and a 22 year old who's in college and a 19 year old in college, but or a 20 year old in college, but they've been home for the better part of the year. And uh, still, you know, I try to exercise regularly and um, I like to sail and uh, race sailboats. So I do some of that during the summer. And uh, so I, I feel like I have a pretty decent balance. I have a very full plate um, with my administrative responsibilities for my orthopedic group, as well as my clinical practice, which is very busy. But I also make sure I prioritize uh, trying to keep the best balance I can with those types of things, because I like that equally 
do well clean. Skiing is really probably my passion. Yeah, no, it's uh, so important to have that balance. And it sounds like with that incredibly full plate, you really need to actually have those diversions and activities outside of that to make sure that you continue to enjoy what you do. Yeah, absolutely. If you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? Oh my goodness. Uh, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to use my hand account. So, uh, passionate, compassionate, passionate, compassionate, tenacious, high energy. Can we call that one word? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, very, I would say ambitious. Yeah. I think with, uh, with all of what you do, you must, must be incredibly driven. Um, so I think all of that energy hopefully, hopefully comes into play there. Now, obviously, the main topic of the day and the content that most of the, I think the listeners are really interested in is um, your area of special interest, specifically orthobiologics. But I'm just wondering if we could just preamble a little bit of that context to just what is an orthobiologic and what are the different types of treatments that fit into that category of therapy? Well, I'm, I'm glad that you use the term orthobiologics because oftentimes the listeners will think about things like stem cells and regenerative medicine and things of that nature. And there's this perception that we have the ability to sort of rewind the clock and uh, reverse the effects of aging and injury and degeneration. And I would say that that's an aspirational goal, but it's not really what we do today. And an orthobiologic is, a, would say, a much more pragmatic way to consider these things. And in my mind, I look at it as sort of the ability to use natural solutions to either modify symptoms most commonly, and that's really what most of the orthobiologics that we use today do. They modify symptoms. They make people feel better. And frankly, that's an acceptable uh, solution. You know, the reality is uh, we're on this earth for some, you know, finite period of time. And most of the things we do are really symptom modification and nothing that we do actually lasts forever. So patients come for treatment and the most common reason they come to treat with uh, you know, people who do musculoskeletal medicine or rheumatology is because they have pain and disability and we're trying to reduce those symptoms. And frankly, you don't have to eradicate disease to do that. You just got to make people feel better so that they can do more with less discomfort. So orthobiologics are offer alternatives sort of in the office-based care of uh, musculoskeletal problems, most commonly osteoarthritis, which is the loss of cartilage uh, by modifying symptoms. But we also use some of these orthobiologics in the operating room to improve the outcomes of surgical procedures, uh, such as rotator cuff repair or cartilage procedures where we actually can regenerate cartilage. So it's an adjunct to some of the things we do. It can also be used to reduce inflammation and to treat some chronic conditions. But what it doesn't do in, in and of themselves in the absence of any other technology, such as scaffolds and a uh, source of uh, maybe growth factors and other things is it doesn't in and of themselves just regenerate or recreate new tissue in the way that we use them, at least in the United States. There clearly are ways to do that, but the most common aspects of utilizing so-called orthobiologics are really quite simply agents that modify symptoms, typically reducing pain, and then the associated improvements in function after that's, that's undertaken. Brilliant. And what types of treatments fit into that category? You obviously mentioned stem cells, but are there, are there other types of interventions that fit in that category? Sure. I mean, one might argue that something as simple as corticosteroids or an orthobiologic, you know, steroid, for example, can inhibit inflammation and that's a biologic in and of itself. Taking an oral anti-inflammatory such as Motrin or ibuprofen, that's a biologic. But the kinds of things that are a little bit more cutting edge that we utilize are 
substances such as platelet-rich plasma, otherwise known as PRP, where we simply use a, a peripheral blood with an elevated concentration of platelets that sort of function like little pharmaceutical stores with growth factors that can do positive things like reduce inflammation, maybe reduce pain, uh, can improve healing. Uh, and when they're applied in certain ways and uh, maybe even change blood supply in certain environments. We also utilize uh, bone marrow uh, as a source of additional platelets as, and a source of stem cells, but they're not the kind of stem cells that we talk about that are dividing in a, in a test tube and sort of cultured and used in and of themselves to create new tissue, but the cells themselves might drive the healing response. They might call upon our, own, our body's own sort of endogenous or uh, our own stem cells to come to the area to create healing. But they're not used in the same sense that we that that people think they are, which is to take a cell and have it differentiate into some tissue like brand new cartilage or a nerve in the setting of a spinal cord injury and things of that nature. But they do certainly have in certain environments the ability to function as stem cells. But the way that we use them is typically not in and of its, themselves related to that that function. We also use fat or adipose tissue as a source of these types of cells. And then finally, the synovium or the joint lining and even the bursa in the shoulder uh, as a source of uh, factors that might provide uh, an augmentation or enhanced healing response. Brian, how, how long have these types of therapies been used, uh, whether we're talking about stem cell injections or, or PRP? You know, PRP has been used a long time, but in a lot of these factors have been used in areas outside of musculoskeletal medicine, such as in the dental space and plastic surgery. But I would say in the orthopedic space, which is really the, the care and treatment of problems related to the joints, the, the ligaments, tendons and muscles and so forth, I would say at least 15 years we've been using, I'd say 10 to 15 years we've been using PRP or platelet-rich plasma. Bone marrow concentrate is, I'd say, a, it has been, while it has been around for some time, I would say it's been more commonly utilized only over the last 10 years in the United States. And the ability to take to, to obtain fat or adipose tissue through procedures that, are, that mirror sort of liposuction where fat is removed has really only been you know present commercially for maybe five to seven years. Fantastic. And let's try and take these one at a time. We'll go through PRP first and then get into stem cells. But firstly, you mentioned a little bit about platelet-rich plasma injections being rich in platelets, which are the little energy stores of growth factors. How do they actually provide a benefit or purported benefit for people who actually have uh, osteoarthritis? So platelets may have thousands of growth factors held inside of them, these little packages or vesicles. Uh, we call them alpha granules. They're just like little, 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 little repositories of these growth factors, but there's you know, maybe there's, you know, five to eight of them that are known to be particularly beneficial. We've performed a number of studies, for example, in vitro, which is literally in a, in a test tube looking at degenerated cartilage, and we create a model that mimics an arthritic joint, but literally in a test tube where we apply PRP to, to show how it might in, inhibit the inflammatory process and even promote healing in that environment. So we know that PRP or platelet-rich plasma and elevated concentration of platelets uh, we could draw your blood and get a bunch of platelets, but the volume would be very high. So the what this does do is that because platelets weigh a certain amount of what we call specific gravity, when you put them in a blood in a centrifuge, we can sort of layer it out uh, in a way. It's almost like putting it in a blender where it layers out the weight of, of the platelets so that we can get a concentration of them. So we don't need huge uh, volumes to get the same number of platelets. So we get a fold increase in platelets and they provide these growth factors, as I mentioned, that could be anti-inflammatory and reduce inflammation. But we've also shown, for example, in some of our studies that you can take rotator cuff tendons and cause the tendons themselves to actually be associated with a better healing response. 
Uh, we've looked at bone integration for cartilage transplants, and uh, we've looked at cartilage repair procedures with the use of platelet-rich plasma to enhance a cartilage repair procedure and uh, putting it in a different environment. So lots of ways that they can be effective uh, by providing these growth factors, which help the body sort of upregulate or trick it, if you will, to do a better job in its, uh, what it natively wants to do from a healing response. Superb. Now, from a patient perspective, obviously, this involves getting some blood taken, having that spun down in a centrifuge, and as you mentioned, that platelet layer being taken off and re-injected back into them with, you know, potentially a series of injections over a period of time. Do you tend to use white cell-free versions of this? And along the same lines, do you monitor what it is that you're sticking back into people? Yeah, so great question. I think it's important for listeners to understand that not all PRP is the same. Platelet-rich plasmas, while it is a concentration of platelets, there are different amounts of white blood cells depending on how the process is done. There might be different amounts of red blood cells present. And uh, there are some conditions that may benefit when PRP is used uh, where we get an elevation of the number of platelets over a very small volume, but we also may want to actually have white cells and some believe that that might be more applicable to a situation with where we have tendonitis. So we'll say tennis elbow, otherwise known as lateral epicondylitis, might be more beneficial, for example, to have more white blood cells. Alternatively, there's a general belief when we're treating osteoarthritis or loss of cartilage in a joint that has symptoms of pain and swelling, that PRP associated with fewer white cells may be more beneficial. So we treat, we, we try often to match the nature of the platelet-rich plasma to the condition we're treating, but truth be told, because it's, it can, it, we found a leukocyte poor or white PRP that has a small number of white cells to be very cost-effective, we use that for a variety of the conditions that we treat, including tendonitis, uh, such as patella tendonitis or Achilles tendonitis or um, even muscle injuries and, and things of that nature. Most commonly, though, we use PRP for the treatment of symptomatic osteoarthritis, and we do it in a series of three injections uh, in that uh, with that treatment algorithm. And sometimes we even combine it with something called hyaluronic acid, which is a lubricant, uh, where we give the injections of a PRP platelet-rich plasma with a lubricant uh, spaced seven to ten days apart with, say, three injections. Now, Brian, I fully recognize that there's lots of trials out there of varied quality looking at PRP, uh, platelet-rich plasma. But in the current climate, are there any international guidelines that advocate for the use of platelet-rich plasma for symptomatic knee osteoarthritis? And if not, why not? You know, it's interesting. If I, I would say that knowing the literature as well as we do now with PRP, that is the one agent that probably has the most substantial body of evidence that uh, suggests it can be uh, beneficial for the treatment of the symptoms due to underlying osteoarthritis of the knee. I would say it has been studied for tennis elbow. It's been studied for uh, foot and ankle problems, patellar tendonitis, and so forth. And truth be told, it can be beneficial in those conditions when other things may not uh, be beneficial and a patient may not be responsive to traditional treatments. But when you look at the literature, I would argue that PRP in some respects is becoming a dominant treatment strategy, meaning rather than last off the shelf, it's becoming, it's be, can be taken off earlier off the shelf, if you will, to treat the symptoms of arthritis. There's been clearly, you know, the, like many new technologies, if they're easy to do, they're not particularly expensive, clinical adoption often uh, starts out ahead of research that supports it. And as such, there has not been uh, a number of sort of international guidelines that suggest when and where it should be used. I will say that the various uh, societies, of uh, specialty societies, 
and associations for various specialties have become much more forward-facing in terms of policies and so forth to say, look, let's look at the literature, digest it, and say, what can we say is, is or is not supported? And even one of our major organizations, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, actually suggests in their current guidelines, their what we call clinical practice guidelines for the appropriate use of PRP, suggests that there may be a role for PRP in the treatment of symptomatic arthritis. I would argue that it, some of the best literature right now exists with prospective, meaning looking forward, randomized trials with the use of PRP, one of which we were involved with, which is highly suggested that it can reduce the symptoms of arthritis. So again, I think the public needs to understand that we're not necessarily regenerating cartilage, but we're treating the, the associated pain, maybe inflammation or swelling and discomfort and activity loss due to those symptoms with platelet-rich plasma. But to date, I would say there is not a standard of care document that says this is when it will work and this is when it can be used because truth be told, these, you know, even cortisone may or may not work in some people, lubricant, hyaluronic acid, otherwise uh, may or may not work. Anti-inflammatories by mouth may or may not work. So we often take a sort of multidisciplinary approach to the treatment of arthritis and some may benefit, some may not, but often there's very little downside to trying. Brian, on the same note, before we move on to stem cells, can you just briefly touch upon costs, particularly whether there's any major insurers that cover this and probably more importantly, what the likely out-of-pocket costs are and also any risks that potentially might be associated with the use of PRP? Currently, platelet-rich plasma is uh, what we call an unreimbursed benefit in the United States. In other words, there are very few, if any, payers that uh, consider anything other than investigational or experimental. And as such, uh, we the patient it's not a pocket expense. Keep in mind, in the world of uh, a patient, a charge is different than a cost. So the cost of doing it is often you know, not the same as the, what patients are being charged. And there's a lot of variability uh, in terms of what people do charge. I would say, on average, in the United States, uh, that you would see fees in, in the range of $350 to $750 per treatment. That would be not atypical uh, for platelet-rich plasma treatment. As far as side effects or negative outcomes, there's been very few, if any, that have been reported. Um, we've seen some reports in um, one of our, in, in the NFL, for example, of maybe bone developing in areas that had muscle injury where PRP was used. But the challenge there is that sometimes we see bone development with muscle injury independent of being treated with PRP. So it's hard to say it's a cause and effect issue. I would say in general, the use of PRP is considered particularly safe. Superb. Yeah. And I, I think the costs here in Australia are probably broadly similar to those in the United States and similar to the US as well. It's not covered by insurance and it tends to be something that the, um, the patient's responsible for. Now, moving on to stem cells. Again, you were, you were talking before about how they work. Um, and I'm just wondering whether we could expand a little bit upon that. Because historically, I think most people have believed that if you put a population of cells like this into the joint, it's going to regenerate the joint tissues that are ultimately responsible for the symptoms in osteoarthritis. But I think it's probably important to put that to bed. But can you just tell us a little bit about how they work and how they might modify symptoms? In the United States, we have access to cells that have uh, stem nests. In other words, the ability to function as stem cells in a test tube, but they have to be minimally manipulated in terms of how we obtain them in order to be used in a, in a clinic or outpatient setting. And we also can't make any specific claims as to what, those, what these cells uh, might particularly do. So uh, there are a variety of ways we can get access to stem cells. And in its pure sense, if we turn to what happens in pediatrics and hematology, uh, stem cells are often used by obtaining bone marrow and culturing them and expanding them. 
that can be done and is done in the United States, but it's not this, these are not studies looking at embryonic or fetal tissue that we're using. We're using cells that come from the body at the point of care and then re-implanting them and using them for their biologic benefits. So there are cells and that can be cultured in a laboratory and put back into a patient. They could actually come from a donor. The things that we use routinely in the United States actually come from the patient and have they're identified as being stem cells based upon uh, certain markers on the cells that say, yes, this is a stem cell. But the reality is they're not necessarily functioning as a stem cell in the way that, as I mentioned earlier, where the cells themselves are driven down a pathway that they become, where they become the cells themselves, for example, don't become new muscle or don't become cartilage or don't become a ligament, but rather can help take advantage of the body's implicit or what we say endogenous ability to heal by sort of upregulating the environment, you know, making it more hospitable to do to achieve a healing response. So the cells can function in, like in and of themselves as uh, sort of uh, repositories of growth factors or induce growth factor production, which have a, a, a beneficial effect. They can also call upon other cells in your body, which can do the same thing. So all of us walk around with lots and lots of stem cells that can actually be called upon and they can promote a healing response in the right setting. But the cells themselves are not necessarily doing all the work down uh, to create downstream new tissue. And I think that's the misperception that people have that we can create joint space in a joint that doesn't otherwise exist by injecting a stem cell. Uh, or we can you know, regenerate a nerve or, or a muscle tissue just because you inject these things. So the sources of these are, as I mentioned, most commonly are coming from bone marrow, where there's lots and lots of these cells that line the bone lining and that are sort of pulled off with the procedure when we put, put sort of a large needle in and, and acquire them. And then we, you know, we suspend it in centrifuge to get a, a concentration of these, and then we re-inject them. And what you have to understand is the bone marrow, for example, is not just cells that have the ability to behave as stem cells, but we also get an increased concentration of platelets and some other things. So it's not a pure cell-based uh, solution that's being re-injected, but we're taking advantage of sort of the pharmacology of what these cells can bring to the table, including growth factors, which we know can inhibit the inflammatory process that uh, is associated, for example, with arthritis, or they might promote blood supply or uh, new blood vessel development in a setting of, say, a tendon injury or, or, or what we call tendonitis, which is really just disease tendons. No, it's not really inflammation. So uh, lots of applications, but again, it's important to understand we're not rewinding the clock starting over. We're promoting a healing response and hopefully modifying the way a patient feels by reducing their symptoms. Superb explanation. I think hopefully it will be really helpful to the people who, who are out there. Now, similar question to what we asked before for PRP, Brian, but what's the evidence to support that they're effective in the context of randomized control trials? And again, similar question to the, the guidelines. No guidelines, to my understanding at present, advocate for them, and a number have recommended against until we get better evidence. What's your, what's your take on that? I think that sort of sums it up. I would argue that the literature to date and the various uh, applications of musculoskeletal medicine most commonly used in arthritis, symptomatic arthritis of the knee as an injection, suggests that in randomized trials compared to placebo, most commonly saline, there may be no demonstrable benefit. So at this point, it's interesting. It intuitively makes sense, but we have yet to see a clinical trial that's dispositive to, to the extent that it shows a clear difference, a winner against other existing treatments. I actually think there's more data for PRP, supportive PRP for symptoms of arthritis than there is for the use of the stem cell preparations that we use currently in the United States. Yeah, no, completely agree. And from the viewpoint of the costs here, and it's obviously very difficult to generalize, but 
What would be the average cost for bone marrow concentrate type injection? And are there any downsides, again, to the use of stem cells risk-wise? You know, depending on where these cells are obtained, if it could be coming from the patient, so-called autogenous tissue, uh, there is they are a little more invasive procedures. So we use a, a large bore needle, for example, a trocar to obtain bone marrow, and that can be taken from the hip bone, the iliac crest. We During surgery, we get it from the humerus or the tibia or other areas where we're operating, so we're close to the area we're operating. So, you know, it, it can be actually a particularly uncomfortable procedure. It can be done in the office. Uh, in our practice, we use it as an adjunct to rotator cuff repair most commonly because we actually have some early data that shows that it might reduce the incidence of re-tears when a concentration of bone marrow is utilized at the time of rotator cuff repair surgery. We have some really interesting work in that regard. The cost of the capital equipment or the instrumentation is actually much greater than it is for PRP. And I would say that the charges that patients see, and you know, again, you have, people have to understand when you're comparing, you have to be comparing apples to apples here. But when it comes to bone marrow concentrate, I would say the charges that I see range in the neighborhood of $2,500 to $5,000. Unfortunately, sometimes we see astronomical numbers in the seven to $10,000 range, even though we all sort of share the same type of equipment uh, used to get these population of, of stem cells. That's really, really helpful. Brian, from the perspective of stem cells and PRP, is there any other things that you think would be really helpful for listeners to know and or any resources that you'd point them towards to get better informed about it? Well, I think it's important to understand that the efficacy uh, of these substances are often not necessarily related to the cells themselves, and people have to have a, a realistic understanding of what they might, might or could do, and that we're rarely, if ever, as I said, rewinding the clock, but that you don't need to rewind the clock to actually have some positive impact. But I think the unfortunate thing is that it's not regulated enough, at least in the United States, to avoid misperceptions that can often occur due to marketing efforts and so forth. And I, I see a number of these examples, even in Chicago with billboards and so forth. And, you know, there has never to date been a situation where the, an injection of these therapies has led to the restoration of a joint or the healing of a rotator cuff tear or things of that nature. There is emerging data that shows that symptoms or patients may feel better, but people have to be very careful because because of the lack of regulatory oversight that they're really uh, asking the hard questions and they're doing this with reputable sources. Because unfortunately, I just think there's uh, too much misinformation and patients are vulnerable because they want to feel better and they, they want to avoid surgery. And that is the right answer to avoid surgery whenever possible. But false promises um, are not particularly beneficial either. And they have an economic impact on patients who often can't even afford these therapies to begin with. Yeah, so true. So true. And, you know, as you say, there's a lot of misconceptions out there about the use of these, about what they can provide patients. And a lot of people are paying a lot out of pocket for questionable benefits. So I think it's, it's really important that patients get well informed about their potential benefits, uh, their costs and also associated harms uh, before they go down that route, given there are so many other options available to them. Now, Brian, this is a rapid fire closing question segment. Just wondering if you could humor us with some quick responses to questions uh, that hopefully you've had a chance to at least briefly think about, but favorite song? Well, rapid fire, right? <laughs> well, it depends on the month. I've been like, uh, I've been, I've been listening to this song by the late, my favorite song. Well, I have old, I, I'm a big U2 fan. I like uh, Post Malone. But my favorite song of the week has been uh, Business by, uh, by Tiesto. 
You got to get me week by week. My playlist is a function of things that I listen to, things I listened to 30 years ago, and things that my kids listen to. So it, it's it's any given day. It sounds very eclectic, but probably gets lots yeah, of information. It is. What about favorite movie? Oh, gosh. Um, I'll say Being There with uh, Peter Sellers. Fantastic. Favorite book? Cain and Abel. Are you a dog or a cat person? Was a cat person until uh, the pandemic, and now I really love my dog. That my my boys who were bored one day went out and got from a uh, in a mall in the middle of uh, Indiana uh, from a woman who could no longer take care of him. And now we have a border collie who's actually a great dog, super smart, but really high energy. Not great for a city dog, but super high energy. Yeah, we have a lot of border collies in Australia. They definitely need a lot of outside space. Yeah, and we live in the city, so it's not perfect. Yeah, what's your, what's your favorite food? You know, your problem is you're talking to a guy who likes lots and lots of things. So I will say uh, whitefish. What superpower would you have if you had a choice? Uh, telepathy. <laughs> All right. And if you could meet anyone dead or alive, who would it be? Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> Great answer. <laughs> Great answer. <laughs> All right. Now, in the interest of your time, because I know it's getting late there in Chicago, I'm just going to wrap up with a couple of quick questions. Well, you don't necessarily need to respond to them quickly, but um, you're a busy guy. Why do you do what you do? What motivates you? Um, I, you know, I honestly, I, I still love what I do. And uh, it's interesting when you ask people why they go into medicine uh, or why they went into it, the most common answer is they just really enjoy helping people. And I think as physicians, we tend to be very, uh, sort of uh, ego vulnerable where our feedback loop comes from helping others. And uh, I think what keeps all of us coming back to the table is just the satisfaction that, that comes from making a difference in someone's life. So despite all my other interests, I always enjoy going to the office and seeing patients and I still enjoy doing surgery because it's very technical and satisfying. And most of the time, the results are very good as long as you keep your indications uh, uh, um, narrow. So um, I do what I do because I actually just really still love my job. And I love working with young people and smart people who continue to challenge me. Uh, so maybe a long answer, but uh, it's pretty core and pretty basic that I just uh, never lost the passion for taking care of people. Oh, it's a, it's a, great, a great drive and one that we share together. So hopefully you can maintain that. Uh, if you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it be and why? I would say that in medicine let nature cure the disease uh, with time whenever possible. Yeah, natural, natural history is such a powerful tool if we allow it to happen. And, often, and if we understand it and don't misinterpret it. Yeah, I think a lot of the time we jump in very rapidly during a flare of symptoms. That's um, absolutely true. I mean, if you look at people who have symptoms of arthritis and you ask them you know, by query every month, it, it's an oscillating thing. One month they're great, the next month they're not. It depends on when they decide to come and see us in the office. And that's what often invokes treatment, which could otherwise be avoided. Yeah, yeah. Now, in closing, is there any one piece of advice, knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to share with people who have osteoarthritis? I think one important one is that we, a basic principle in my mind is you do the least amount necessary to make someone feel well. Another important tenet is that there has rarely been an association with activity level and disease progression. Said another way, if you have known arthritis, while activities may escalate symptoms, there's very little data that shows that it makes the disease worse. And I think you're better off from a psychological weight management point of view uh, to be active, even in the setting of known arthritis, you just, you just choose your activities that don't create an uptick in your symptoms. 
it's not that disease is being made worse necessarily. It's just you have more symptoms. So you modify your life mainly because you're trying to be more satisfied with fewer uh, symptoms of pain and associated disability. But there's very little data that shows being active makes it worse. Uh, so mostly it's about education and coexisting with your problem. But in the end, as I mentioned before, we don't have to get rid of the disease itself. We have to make people feel better. And there's lots and lots of ways to do that. Yeah, no, sagely advice and something that we often close with is basically encouraging people to stay as active as they can tolerate and hopefully maintain a good quality of life they're in. So Brian, if people wanted to hear a little bit more about, about your thoughts on these topics, what else could they listen to or, or, or go to? Thank you. So, you know, one is my website, briancolemd.com, has a tremendous amount of information. But uh, through that, you can also listen to uh, our weekly podcast called Sports Medicine Weekly, uh, which covers a number of topics about remaining active, nutrition, strength, conditioning, training, uh, youth athletes, and, and so forth. And uh, we've been around for 11 years now and uh, would love for people to tune in to Sports Medicine Weekly, our uh, weekly podcast. Sounds like a fantastic resource. And we'll also include the links to that in the show notes. Now, Brian, really, really appreciate your time, your thoughts, your wisdom. It's been a great pleasure having a chat to you. Thank you. And I appreciate you uh, having me on. Best of luck. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Brian. So in closing, there is an existing evidence base out there for both stem cells and platelet-rich plasma, but we need to do more further rigorous research in order to get the type of quality trials that we need to better support evidence around both stem cells and PRP. These treatments are really appealing and I know a lot of you out there are enthusiastic about trying them as we are in, in the context of trials. But to advocate that these are ready for prime time for the treatment of osteoarthritis is probably ahead of its time. It's really important you understand that at present the evidence base is not at a point where most recommendations from scientific societies and guidelines that come from major international bodies have recommended for these treatments, primarily because of the lack of good quality clinical trials. So we need better evidence. If you're considering it, please think about the potential for large placebo effects, substantial out-of-pocket costs, and also potential harms. Really, in part, because we're very interested in this area, we're doing a large clinical trial called Sculptor, looking at stem cells in the context of knee osteoarthritis, and we're actively recruiting for that, both in Sydney and Hobart. So if you have a particular interest, please go along to the show notes, and we'll provide a link to the recruitment site there. Thank you again so much for listening. Really appreciate the opportunity to have a chance to chat to you about this really important area. And I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, check out www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong. Music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional.